When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This edition of The Literary Life is the very first one in a year and a half that I've recorded live and in person. And sitting across from Lauren Groff at Books and Books this afternoon makes it all that much more sweet. Her new novel, Matrix, is a sensation. A finalist for the National Book Award, Lauren brings to life the world of a 12th century abbey and the nuns who live there. Praise for Matrix has been coming in fast and furious. One of my favorites is this line from USA Today. Matrix is a relentless exhibition of Groff's freakish talent. In just over 250 pages, she gives us a character study to rival Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell. So how are you, Lauren? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm very relaxed. It's all, it's wonderful. Well, the very this is a very um, cool thing today because this is the first time since the pandemic started. So it's the first time in about almost a year and a half mm. that we are doing this podcast um, in person at our Carl Gable store. And I can't think of a better person to do it with than you. Oh, you're the kindest. I'm so delighted. I keep doing the first of a lot of things right now, and people just keep crying. And it's so wonderful. <laughs> it's so wonderful. I, I, I'm on the verge right now. Well, we're in that time where it's really great yeah. to be among people. And you yeah. you forget what it's like, you know, yes. to be among people in the way that we we haven't been. We're all slightly unskinned at the moment, which is <laughs> good and bad, I think, probably, in, in both ways. Yeah. So you're on book tour now, right? It's a semi-book tour. Right. A lot of it has been Zoom. Yeah. It's yeah. Zoom, but then in person. And, and some in person. Which is really great. Oh, it's amazing. And yes. for those of you who don't know, Lauren lives in Gainesville, Florida. I do. So that's do. about, people. people don't understand Florida, do they? Nobody understands. Do you understand? No, Florida? Well, I, I, even beyond understanding, I grew up here, but they don't even know the geography of Florida. No, it's so true. So when we say Gainesville, they say, "Oh, Mitchell and Lauren probably see each other. It's probably a half an hour away yeah, from each other." No, but it's like five, six it's, hours. I think away. it's six hours. The way I drive, it's six hours for sure. Yeah, right. It's yeah. where the University of Florida is yes, it and is. all of that. So coming down here is truly like coming to the tropics, right? No, it's it definitely because we're in the subtropics right. and we don't have iguanas. Right, we don't have. 
love um, orchids in the trees. It's like, it's very astonishing. It, I almost feel like I'm coming to Beverly Hills when I come to Coral Gables. Right? Well, where did they put you up? <laughs> the Biltmore. It's amazing. It's so cool. You can feel the ghosts of the, the 1920s and 30s in it, for sure. Yeah, Johnny Weissmuller and all yeah. those guys. Yeah. And that's where they have the biggest iguanas right around oh, there. Oh, so actually. huge. One, one stole my lunch today oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, at the pool. It was amazing. I loved it. I was feeding it. Too. Yeah, well, you know, in Carl Gables, it's all Mediterranean style mm-hmm. architecture. Tonight, we're going to be at a church oh, cool. that's across the street from the uh, Biltmore, that oh. beautiful church right across the street. Great! Where oh, the I reading's going to be. Yeah, it's oh, gorgeous. Wonderful. And so yeah. everything in Carl, in Carl Gables was built in the 20s, even though mm. for most of the world, that's not very old, yeah. but that's really old in Miami. It's really old in Florida. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. It very much is. I have to tell you, I read Matrix, and it's it's remarkable. It's really, it's really, really weird. Remarkable. It's very <laughs> weird. But you know, for someone who really knows not not much about it, yeah. For me, it was like entering a world that I just had no idea even existed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can, we'll talk more specifically, but. You know, I wish, you know, I'm a product of the 60s in high school and college, early 70s. And because of that, I know nothing Mm -hmm. about history or anything. (laughs) So Eleanor of Aquitaine is not Mm -hmm. someone that I really, really knew or Mm -hmm. Marie de France Mm -hmm. or, you know, what was happening in the abbeys or 12th century Europe is not something I know Mm -hmm. the history of very well. So how come you do? (laughs) Uh, I when I was in college, I wanted to be a medievalist, so I took a lot of ancien français, which is old French, and uh, I just love it. I love I love the literature of the time. I love um, the humor. In researching this book, I came across a lot of manuscripts that you know my faulty Latin was somewhat helpful in trying to figure out. But you often find this marginalia, these drawings that these bored nuns or and and monks generally did. Um, and some of them are hilarious. They're called drolleries. Um, there's some like nuns plucking penises off the penis tree. There's some like um, um, a merman being shot in the butt by an archer. It's just it's just wild. So these are like, like this, the doodles. These are doodles period. on these. Um, are they mostly, on books? Are they yeah, on parchment? Ecclesiastical or? manuscripts, wow. right? Because there, there was no. Um, printing press at the time so everything had to be hand done but would you point out which is something that i didn't quite realize is that you know most of the scribes clearly were not women no i mean most women at the time were not given any kind of education whatsoever right. and really only noble women were um given literacy and numeracy because they were expected to take over the, the estates that they were supposed to run while the husbands were off fighting wars or doing the crusades and, and conquering Jerusalem and everything. So, um, yeah, so the, the idea of having even a whole abbey full of literate woman, women is, you know, just a, an abbey full of treasure, basically. Wow. Yeah. So as a medievalist in college and... A wannabe. A wannabe. <laughs> right. And you, I think you studied French and well as English lit. Yes. So this is something that had to have been planted very early, oh, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah, so when, yes. what is the origin of this? When did you start thinking of Marie de France, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. who actually is a real person, right? She is a real person, yeah. And yeah. 
she wrote she was a poet she um she wrote two books that we know of and one she may have written but um the two books were lay and fables and the lay are these incredible fantastical short stories basically in poetic form drawing on um previous traditions in Brittany and normandy they're amazing. I mean, a lot of them are King Arthur, the Arthurian sort of legends. Some of them have unicorns in them. Some of them are a little bit scatological, a little bit um, funny. Uh, it, and they're all about courtly love, right? And courtly love is this alternate kind of narrative that took shape in the courts of primarily France, primarily Eleanor of Aquitaine's courts um, and her daughter's courts. And courtly love has um, very interesting rules that went against a lot of the rules of the church at the time. For instance, um, distance um, doesn't matter in courtly love. Um, marriage doesn't matter. <laughs> like either party could be married and it didn't wouldn't matter in courtly love. So uh, it's it's this parallel narrative to the narrative of the Catholic Church um, that I found just fascinating right because because what we're told about the middle ages really i guess makes the middle ages seem devoid of humor devoid like very single-minded very um serious sacred cold right but but obviously people of the time were just as complicated as we are now and just as interesting and just wild and and um free thinking and so yeah, so at some point you you just you came across Marie de France's work. Yes. And he, he let it germinate yes. and all of that sort yeah. of thing. Um and then just how did it come together as a novel? How did you start yeah. thinking of it in those terms? So yes, I um I took two semesters of Ancien Francais and I that's when I met um Marie. And then I graduated and Oh, actually, frequently over the past 20 years, I tried to do a translation of the lay, sort of a, a, a prose translation, because I don't know if they need to be in poetry, um, but failed abjectly. I, you know, it was not great. Um, and then um, two things happened. I was up at uh, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, which is this amazing thing at Harvard, where they bring in artists, um, writers, um, academics of different disciplines, say astrophysicists and historians, so that their ideas get spread and, and um, seated and, and um, you, you are encountered with uncomfortable ideas and, and um, people's work that you probably never would have encountered in any other way and it's very, it's thrilling. So the night before, the, the moment when I actually had my vision, I was coming back from somewhere, from some event um, in Arizona and I was on the plane. And I turned on the classic movie station and saw this movie. It was called The Women. Do you know it? I don't. It's so good. Um, it's from 1939, I believe. Um, it's a Cooker. Um, oh, he, George Cooker. He wrote Philadelphia Story. So right. it's like snappy dialogue. Um, Anita Luce actually did the screenplay, right? And she wrote uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, yes, which is right. one of my favorite That's novels period it's so funny right. um so it's so good it's so good and the only characters are women 
And it's amazing, but it's like I watched it feeling both incredibly um, lifted by this, but also really sad because even though all the characters are women, the only thing they talk about are men. Right? Yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was a George Cougar. It was a George Cougar. <laughs> right? um, so I, I was thinking about this film when I went to my friend's uh, lecture. She's Her name is Dr. Katie Bugis. She's at Notre Dame. And she her, she studies the liturgy of medieval nuns, especially from this time. And it's not that I, you know, I, I wanted to be a medievalist. I was kind of interested, but I didn't think it was going to change my life. And I sat down and I started listening. And Katie is such a passionate educator. And she loves these women, like palpably loves mm. them. That as I was sitting, all of these elements, um, Marie de France and um, the movie I'd just seen, and what she was saying came together, and I sort of, I saw the matrix. I saw the book I had to write, and so I put aside the book that I was writing and just sort of focused on this for the next nine months. Set the scene for people who are who have not read this yet sure. um, of that period, of, sure. of Eleanor of Aquitaine, the court, and how much of Marie de France did you have to then sort of, obviously the inner workings of all of these characters mm-hmm. you had to do, but on, on the surface was some of what Marie did, did it follow her life in mm. some way? Well, we do not know almost anything about her. Um, we only, That's what I was yes, asking. Yeah, we only, <laughs> well, she was, um, she was only a writer. She was the first a female published poet in the French language that we know of. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she has had strong um, followers throughout the ages. I mean, she was, she's really a groundbreaker. Um, so, but we didn't know anything about her because she, at the time, the only women we knew anything about were either saints or, um, you know, the, the relational to powerful men. So the mothers of kings, the wives of kings, the daughters of kings. Um, and Marie, we don't know. So there are suppositions, right? Of course, people think that she could have been an abbess who came across from France into England. Um, she could have been an illegitimate noble. Um, she. Some people say she could could have been um, uh, Marie, the daughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine mm. from her first marriage. Um, and um, so it, it was really tricky because, of course, you know, I didn't really have a whole lot except for her, the work that she wrote and, and that came out of her mind. So what I did is I went back to those works and pulled out these vivid images and these ideas and built um basically a matrix uh, for a biography that I then just supposed was her biography. Um, and and that's that's how I did it. And you did and, it so... Oh, thank you. It's so realistic and so... <laughs> it's like I'm reading a piece of history as I Oh, knock on wood. With, yeah. the inner, with the inner life being brought to the brought to the surface. You know who well. I was thinking of? Penelope Fitzgerald, who's yeah. one of the greats, especially when um, writing right. about historical times. Her... Um, the blue flower is about Novalis yeah. and the way that she's very light about it, mm-hmm. about she's, she's very suggestive about things that are happening, but she never hits you over the head. I thought she was my model. Some of the contemporary people who did that were people like Michael and Dodge. When yeah. Did oh those, my God. Those fictional autobiographies. Oh my or goodness. Those fictional biographies. Coming through of, slaughter. Coming through slaughter. It's a, it's a book that I've read probably 10 times. You know, the one so on good. Billy the Kid. Yes. Even his own so memoir, good. Running in the Family. Also which great. is also yes. sort of that very way. Yes. What is truth when you're talking about someone else? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So you then had to do a lot of research. Yeah, this, it was actually the most exciting part of this whole very exciting process was um, I 
I wrote to an abbess of an extant abbey in Connecticut called Regina Lattice, um, and she very kindly allowed me to come and stay in the guest house, and you get to eat the food that the nuns produce. These are these are Benedictine nuns who are in full enclosure, and the most beautiful humans you've ever talked to in your mm. entire life. I talked to probably five of them in depth over the course of um, my stay only a few days and cried every single time because they were just so giving and loving and wonderful and you got to um, to work with them too because uh, work is prayer um, according to the mm-hmm. Benedictine rule and uh, it was just spectacular and um, I was allowed to go to a couple of um, masses and to hear the singing and um, I didn't know what I was seeking when I went there, but something about the palpable love, the the um, the way that the nuns interacted and um, and were were open um, really changed the course of the book. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what you did with Marie, and I'm really curious as to where it came from if she was patterned after anyone else. But you gave her such agency. Well, I she's mean, a little patterned after me. She has all good. my flaws. <laughs> I didn't know. She was really appealing in so many ways. Well, but also a megalomaniac in yeah, a lot of ways. Very <laughs> true. Well, but she was but she was driven. She she's was very driven ambitious. Because she was yeah. driven out of a sense, I guess, you know, out of this relationship she had with Eleanor. Yes. That she yes. felt wronged by Eleanor. Yes. And, am I right about that? And wanted to sort of prove that she could do something. Wronged, and um, you know, she had internalized these courtly love narratives, and um, so the distant, untouchable love was something that she idealized, and so Eleanor became that for her, too. It's very complicated, this this relationship, because Eleanor did not want anything to do with Marie when she was just the 17-year-old, gawky, rude creature that she was trying to get rid of. And then suddenly Marie was proving herself and was able to make this Abbey turn around and the nuns weren't starving. And then um, at the time, Abbeys that were powerful and had a lot of land were actually um, baroness of the throne. And so the abbess was a a baroness, basically, Mm. of the throne. And so that meant that she had to provide um, men for war. She had to provide a huge amount of taxes um, to go into the coffers. And so um, she gained power in the external world as well. And and then... I imagine many of the women went on crusades, it seems like. Well, so this is apocryphal. Um, Eleanor of okay. definitely went on the crusades, and she had some of her ladies, too. There's um, apparently Turkish historians wrote uh, about seeing these uh, Western women riding down the hills on these horses with their hair sort of flowing in the wind and the crusader uniform, which is white silk with a right. red cross, um, it was swords brandished and everything. And that was such a vivid image that I had to put it in my book. Um, and so out of that sort of uh, mention in, I believe, Turkish uh, historians' work, there came this myth of the ladies' army that may or may not be true. Um, nobody quite knows. But we do know for a fact that a lot of women did go to accompany their husbands. Well, I guess what was interesting to me, and maybe why I got confused by thinking of her as a spiritual being in mm. that sense, <clears throat> is that through her sense of agency, she tried to empower the other women who were also in the Abbey, right? Mm-hmm. And then she even took on 
you know, she would be viewed, uh, it was sacrilege where mm-hmm. she took on, oh, yeah. she took on giving sermons and mm-hmm. conducting mass mm-hmm. and, and listening to uh, confession, well, right? Yeah, a lot of things. Or is that what actually happened? So not all in the same abbey, but there are instances in the historical record of, I mean, um, any nun can take confession from any other nun. This has always been the thing that, that people do. Any any kind of clergy member can do that. Um, and it happens a lot. And of course you have a confessor who's your confessor. So it's not, it's not common. Um, but there have been instances of abbesses taking for themselves the power of giving the mass. And of course that was squelched very, very quickly because um, it was predominantly a male prerogative. Um, yeah, there, um, all of the things that Marie does, I, I tried to base on the historical record, even if not, I mean, there was no figure like her as sort of a virago like her who's just right out to just um, to, to wreck the church and make it her own. Well, it's also heartbreaking at the end, too. Mm, I, won't, yeah, I, I don't want to do a, um, I don't want to have a spoiler alert. I guess the visions that she had or yeah. she viewed as visions. Yeah, yeah. There were so many interesting, intricate things that we could just go down rabbit holes and start talking about. I mean, the whole idea of sexuality in the... Yeah. In the Abbey, yeah, 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 and that you you basically at one point, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, you say that she's she's talking about you know um, the love of other women, and she's saying that there was no um, there was no law against or no rule against. Mm-hmm. What she called, which is really interesting, female, female sodomy, sodomy. Yeah, which yeah, was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, well, because who was making the rules at yeah. the time? All men, especially right. um, clerical men who uh, were ostensibly not ever looking at or touching women, so they didn't have any understanding of female physiology. Right. And therefore, I think they believe that if a, a male weren't involved, there could be Yeah, I think you said yeah. that. You yeah. said that. It, and somewhere yeah. that I heard you talking, you said that, you know, men of that period thought it was impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. I know. Cause... And he was like, well, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it's really, it was really quite astonishing. And, and also we're layering our reading of that from a 21st century perspective. Yes, right. Going through the Puritan period. And right. Going through everything else right, that, we've, right. that we've gone through. So the, oh my the naturalness of it was... So an interesting, and what it also, what you also did, and and maybe this gets into um, practice, but uh, what you also did is through language, through syntax, through everything that a good writer does. I mean, I felt like I was in that period. Oh, good. You had me going to my dictionary more than at any time <laughs> I think I've ever read it. No, but it was fascinating. There were all of these words. How do you find those words? Oh, there were all of these amazing words <laughs> that, you know, even the words dealing with hawks, dealing with yeah, food, yeah. dealing with nature, things that I wasn't quite aware of. Oh, you know, I take so much joy in writing. And, I, you know, I have so much pleasure in the, the texture of... This, the phrase and and um, the, the right word in the right place and that comes you know I, I began as a poet a very bad poet as with everything so far uh, other than fiction that I've tried um, and that's the part of it that I just delight in that that gives me uh, if coming up against a word like um, in in falconry um, 
a hawk that is caught in the wild and then taken in order to be trained to be sort of a sporting hawk. That's called a haggard. Right. Right. And that's the most amazing word because we use it a lot. We say, oh, she's looking haggard, which means like a wild caught hawk. Right. right? There's this element of captivity, of unhappiness in in the word that um, I love so much. Well, that brings me to Matrix, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I started going down that road and trying... And I found all these interesting definitions of Matrix. Yeah. And I'm wondering what what it is for you in oh terms of yes what, you know where did because there are there's like 37 meanings of the word matrix. at least oh uh, it's my it's one of my favorite words which is why i fought very very hard to have this book be titled matrix even with keanu Reeves <laughs> coming out with a new right well film. we don't call it the matrix, <laughs> the right? matrix. some uh, people do and i get a little <laughs> irritated um yeah no um yeah i had to fight for it because it's it's it is the word that sort of reflects back into the book in about a dozen different ways. So matrix comes from Latin for mother. Um, and it is a word that is used in so many disciplines, right? In ge- geology, it is the bedrock in which gems are found. There's um, a matrix as a, an organizational structure, not just right. computer structure, which is, I think what the matrix is. Um, there is a matrix that is, um, it's a it's it's sort of the the seal matrix is how you close a letter in medieval times with the wax and you press the seal matrix into it, um, which makes an appearance. Which makes in, an appearance, and book. so does in the book um, uh, Eve as matrix as right. the mother of all. Well, yeah. The, the definition of matrix that I was keeping in mind when I was looking through it was womb. Yeah, womb. Absolutely. Womb is, I yes. mean, and there's yes. nothing more. I mean, I, womb, mother, that all makes womb, sense. Womb, mother, yes, but, exactly. But the idea of the womb was something really yes. very, yes. very the, poignant the, for me. The place out of which other things come, right? right. I mean, um, and, and, right, and that sort of reflects into the meaning that I find actually closest to the book itself, which is um, the original on which other things are made. So the original record from which other records are pressed or the original um form um on which sculptures are are then created afterward so that's that's the meaning that um gave me chills when i saw it and and knew it yeah and and the question for the reader is does marie de france become a matrix in some way for what happens later on and we know i can't it. tell we, you we, no no i'm not asking you i read it but and i don't want to tell anybody because we ruined what happens yeah, yeah yeah but you write so movingly of nature and ecology and that has such a presence in this mm-hmm. book all mm-hmm. over and mm-hmm. in the last few pages you talk about that mm-hmm. and so which leads me to really believe that you were thinking in some part of that mind of yours because I know how how interested you are in what's happening in our world oh, today yes, yeah. um, you know it, 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 in terms of what matrix tells us about our world today yeah and yeah. and if you could talk about that a little bit that would be yes great. I, absolutely I um I am not supposed to say this but I'm going to anyway sorry Claire um the this is one of a loose triptych of three books that are all talking about God, oh. climate change, women in nature, um, the way that 
humanity has misread Genesis as um, domination and not dominion, which is more nurturing and more lovely. And so part of my vision for this book, which is the first of the three, would be um, I wanted, you know, historical fiction is this, this interesting chimera because the, the modern reader picks it up and knows that it's written recently. And so there's always that, that question because we know that we're not actually in the 12th century or the 13th century. We're, we're coming from a contemporary angle. Um, so some people like Henry James can think that that is um, what gives historical fiction its artificiality and therefore it can never be like true literature. Other people like me like to play with it because now we can um, we can look at the past as the roots of where we are now, right? We can look at the past as sort of the the prototype or the the early place for um, the next thousand years, and it's where we end up with the Anthropocene and sort of the cusp of climate apocalypse, um, where we are absolutely right now. Um, so I, I think that my, my vision for this book was to see, could there have been an alternate way, right? Could there have been um, just resistance to, to the path we ended up taking? Um, and I don't know, because I, I do think Marie did internalize a lot of the, um, the hierarchy. She internalized a lot of the, the proto-capitalism in the feudalist system, right, that, that created... Um, eminence, preeminence of the human over nature. Does the, does the writer have a responsibility when it comes to morality in our world? Oh, that's a really fascinating question and one I cannot address in the next hour and a half. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, I think there's an, the writer has to have a profound moral responsibility to their work and to their reader. Um, does that mean that the the writer writes polemical work? Right. That's no. Different. That right. Well, but I actually think a lot of people are conflating that. They feel like the, they at have the to. moment in particular, right. and I think that that is a really severe issue, particularly with American literature. Yeah. That this need to be polemical. Right. Um, I do think it's um it's a moral not rigidity, but it's a moral depth and a moral um insatiability that I think the writer or the, any artist needs to draw on in order to create something that is actually posing questions, um, shaking the foundations of what it is that the reader and the artist itself, themselves think they know about the world. That's my definition of what art is, right? I think there are beautiful books in the world that don't do this and possibly, maybe I'm being a jerk, but I wouldn't say that they're art. I think confirmation of the biases that we come into a book with, that um, that's entertainment. Um, and uh, there are plenty of books we go to for entertainment, but I wouldn't call that art. In fact, um, I want I want I would hope that a, a a a book shakes you, a book makes you see the world differently. And then, how about the writer outside of his or her work? Mm. See, that's a different writer as activist. Yeah, in a sense. I think. See, I find that a, a different thing, and I think that a lot of people would um, 
resist what I'm saying, which is absolutely fine for them. Um, I don't think of art as utilitarian, but I think that people who are given a voice and um, a, a loud voice in the world um, who have this moral, like, fixity, um, I think that they, I, I believe that I need to step forward and say things and do things. Um, and sometimes I'm going to make horrible mistakes. Uh, but I think that it's important to be engaged in not just the work, but also the world. Absolutely necessary to be engaged in, in the world um, and try to make things better. But that's just being a citizen, to be perfectly honest. Um, I mean, some people just don't have the energy, and that's fine, too. My personal choice is to try to do both. We all had a lot of hope back in January. How are you feeling now? I mean, what yeah. happened in Texas is just horrific. It's horrific. But um, yeah, I'm. Um, it's it's a it's a strange time, right? Because there's still light on the horizon. It's just um, it's frustrating. I mean, the we. I've been on the board of the the Florida Planned Parenthood, the large Florida Planned Parenthood affiliate since 2011. And so we've seen um, Texas coming and it's coming for Florida too, just FYI. And it's horrific. Um, and um, the amount of suffering that's going to occur to um, particularly women or people with uteruses and the children that they're, I mean, the suffering of the children is going to be so horrible. Um and um, so, so I'm I'm kind of devastated to be honest to, to to see this coming. I mean, we saw it coming when um, the Republicans wouldn't let um, Obama uh, nominate a Supreme Court justice. Like everyone knew what was happening, and there were things we could have done, and we didn't do them. So now we're in for another decade or two decades of retrograde laws. Um, we're going to lose a lot of ground in a lot of different ways, I think. And so your voice is so much appreciated. Oh, when thanks. I, when I when I hear it, I make mistakes, but I, I you know I think that the the general um, desire to make the world better. I mean, that's what you know. Unfortunately, like I don't know this until I actually go out on tour and people tell me what my book is about. But I, that's one of that is one of those things that every one of my books is sort of testing and trying to experiment with and trying to figure out like how can we be better? How can we create better communities that actually care about the vulnerable and the weak? Um, and often in my books it fails because. It has failed in life too, but this is something that's really, really important if we're going to survive. As like, so, where does this humans. come? Where does this come from? What What were um, your What were your parents like? What are they like? Oh, they're great. Um, so my, well, so my parents are very Calvinist. <laughs> uh -huh. Um, my my dad's a doctor. My mom um put him through med school and was a bi biology teacher, and then at fifty three went back to school to become a physician assistant, which is hard to do even if you're young and then you know right. um so they're really hard working they're really morally um they are morally rigid um but also um very passionate about the world um and i think they they gave all of us this this feeling of um rage would you read a little something oh Could sure you do that oh sure that'd be really yeah, cool i don't want to ruin your um, she rides out of the forest alone, 17 years old in the cold March drizzle, Marie, who comes from France. 
It is 11.58 and the world bears the weariness of late Lent. Soon it will be Easter, which arrives early this year. In the fields, the seeds uncurl in the dark, cold soil, ready to punch into the freer air. She sees for the first time the abbey, pale and aloof on a rise in this damp valley, the clouds drawn up from the ocean and brung against the hills in constant rainfall. Most of the year, this place is emerald and sapphire, bursting under dampness, thick with sheep and chaffinches and newts, delicate mushrooms poking from the rich soil. But now, in late winter, all is gray and full of shadows. Uh, Thank you, Lauren, for being on The Literary Life. Matrix is your new book, and it's remarkable. Oh, thank thank you. you. It's a pleasure.